Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. We are headlong into November and I am excited to share today's interview with you. Thanks so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that's your time. If you're new here, I hope that you get a ton of value from this episode. I know that you are. So thanks for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Have you ever wondered how the deregulated markets work, in particular Texas, as one of the great experiments of deregulating the energy supply? And uh, I mean, there, there are tons of elements to this that are just so complicated. Well, today I'm going to help demystify some of this through the lens of my guest, Today's entrepreneur is Jessen Bradshaw, CEO of Energy Ogre, which is an electricity management company based in Houston, Texas, that helps folks get the best prices for their electricity. With over 100,000 Texans in their customer mix, they have helped save over $150 million for their clients. We discuss why Texas is an attractive place for industry and how the electricity markets play a role in that. How do deregulated markets work, in fact, at all? Uh, what does it mean to have a customer choice market? And what is the perspective from the viewpoint of a retail energy provider? I think you're gonna love this conversation with Jess. And, you know, he's got a career dating way back to the 90s, trading power for ERCOT and, and other regional markets, uh, as well as having commercial responsibility for Dynagy's Midwest and Southeast generation portfolio. Uh, the guy is just a treasure trove of wisdom so buckle in and you're going to learn a ton. If you do like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show. I uh, don't know if you're listening in Spotify or Apple iTunes or Pocket Cast, however it is that this is coming into your earballs. Uh, just hit the subscribe button right there. And that's how you will not miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always head over to mysuncast.com where we've got over 400 additional founder stories and startup advice to guide you along your clean energy career. Really, really appreciate all of you who have taken the time recently to uh, click on that, become a member button or work with Nico button up on the website as well. Uh, we're no longer accepting applications for coaching, but I'm so grateful for the ones who did reach out. Remember, we do uh, have a coaching call, usually about once a quarter. So keep your ears open if you'd like to work with me or just go ahead and fill out an application and get in the queue. <laughs> For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as I said, we are going to dive into the world of deregulated energy. A lot of our conversations lately have been with folks that uh, are operating in the deregulated markets. Uh, may recall a conversation we had uh, with Nate from IGS Solar, and uh, today we're going to talk with Justin Bradshaw, as I mentioned before, the CEO of Energy Ogre. Energy Ogre manages electricity 
uses and has their has proprietary systems for helping residential customers basically pick the best rate for their house, for their market. Uh, they've got over 100,000 Texans uh, under management and their service, saving over 40% in electricity bills and uh, over $150 million since uh, founding in 2013. We're going to dive into that and more. But first, let's welcome Jesson Bradshaw to the show. Thanks, Nico. I need to make you maybe the paid spokesperson. Maybe we start running some commercials. You know, you can be a uh, face of the franchise. I love it, man. I love it. I want one of those fancy little ogre icons. <laughs> well, we, we, got you, we got you covered. Don't worry about that. That's good. That's good. I remember I, had, I got a good chuckle the first time I saw the inbound uh, communication from your team about our interview. And I thought immediately... Uh, I thought, wow, this is going to be this is going to be a fun conversation. This is someone who <laughs> understands sort of positioning and having a light uh, a light approach uh, and and uh, creating you know creating an avatar. Literally, I want to ask just out of the gate though, because uh, most people won't understand a lot of what we're talking about it unless they are really into the power markets. But but you you have a, a flair of a company that really helps residential homeowners. Uh, but why did you choose an ogre? So I think if you're here, what you'd see is imagine the cola wars, maybe on steroids. I mean, I hate when everyone says something big, they say on steroids, but Mm. just imagine like, you know, all of us, maybe we have younger folks listening or watching, but like the Coke Pepsi wars, but imagine that there were like 30 brands that are out there just saturating everything, billboards, television, you know, mailers, you name it, just saturating. And so- when we first started going, what we realized pretty quickly is people were very confused because we're not a retail electricity provider. We're providing this this service that's assisting people in navigating through all these things. And so it's a fairly subtle distinction, especially when you're a consumer here, you just get bombarded with messaging all the time. So, you know, the, the first idea is to kind of just turn off your brain a little bit so that, you know, you don't you don't really pay a whole lot of attention. And so what we realized pretty early on is if we had uh, named our business in something that was easily conflated or confused with a provider, then it would be very difficult for us to really capture anybody's attention. And so, you know, we came up with Energy Ogre. I love the idea that it's so out of left field. It allowed us to do a lot with our ogre mascot. And yeah. There's tons of ogreisms, you know, like ogre plague, ogre load, whatever those are. There's just oh, that's fun. A, a huge amount that we can do with that that can just compete for somebody's attention and and just make them step for a beat or or, or commit something for a beat because it is sufficiently different than what they're getting exposed to on a day in and day out basis. What's the uh, most fun or creative way that your team has leveraged? Uh, ogre as uh, a way to capture market or to capture customer attention? When we've had some really fun things, like you had talked about the avatars and, you know, we've had uh, not, not only our own team having done that, but we built a, a generator that's almost like, uh, I think no it's kind, of, kind of like if you were to go to a, um, you know, if you're sitting there with a police sketch artist and they put, you know, okay, these are the eyes that I want, you know, like the, it's like uh, how they used to yeah, Nintendo, like you would have mm. your Mii avatar, you could yeah, kind of yeah, create of them. So we've had some of that stuff as well for some of our customers to do that. So it's just been a lot of fun. It allows them to get engaged. Can I create um, my own ogre? You should be able to. I need to make sure we just launched uh, a new site. Yep. 
And yeah, I'll, you should I'll, ask I'll your marketing you team to create create me an ogre for when we push this out to the to the Suncast Drive. That would be I fun. Will. I would <laughs> be awesome. I'll totally do that. I'll make it I'll make it my <laughs> avatar for the day on LinkedIn. <laughs> Perfect. But it's, there's just so many things that you can do with that, and uh, yeah. it, it's just been a lot of fun. Well, you know, you've had a lot of fun, and I imagine a lot of fun stories in uh, your deep history all the way back to the 90s trading power and ERCOT and WEC and SERC and lots of uh, lots of market uh, related and power related experience. In fact, I think you even worked at one point with uh, our buddy over at Sonova, John Berger. Tell me a bit. I did. Tell me a bit about how you got into the power business. And I'd love to navigate our way to when it became clear that the power markets were fundamentally changing and, and how you decided to sort of uh, take navigate those changes in your own career? Sure. So um, like a lot of people and a lot of things that happened, it was totally happenstance, luck and good fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Has nothing to do with being any smart, any bit smarter, better, faster than the next person. But when I graduated from uh, undergraduate, I was looking for what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I thought I was going to go to medical school and was kind of prepared to go down that path. And I decided that, well, I may just want to take some time to see what the what kind of the business world is about. And I was tired of being just abjectly poor. So <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I should get a job, you know, and stop being a you know, poor uh, college student. I ended up taking a job with a company called Natural Gas Clearinghouse. It was a pretty small company. They had just done a, a, a synthetic IPO, but a uh, reverse IPO, I should say. And, you know, they... I thought I was going into this job for a very mundane, boring, entry-level natural gas scheduling job or something like that. And when I came in to interview, they said, hey, uh, so, you know, the natural or the electricity business, there's some federal rulemaking that's come down. And that's an emergent business for us. And we want to put some people in there. You know, what do you think about being involved in electricity? And, you know, I didn't know anything about electricity at all. So I said, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> The reason that they wanted to find new incoming people is that, you know, obviously power is a 24 hour a day thing. And so you need to have someone manning a desk, a real time operations desk, 24 hours a day. And none of the legacy guys on the gas side with families or all those folks were like, hell no, I'm not working overnight. So it was, it was, you know, a lot easier to bring in some, you know, dumb, you know, recent graduate from, uh, from college to, to take some of those things on. So, but it, it ended up being one of the most amazing balances and one of the one of the truly you know life altering events for me. It sort of set the trajectory for the balance of you know certainly my professional career, if not my life. So it, it just was literally a confluence of being in the right place at the right time when the world is changing around you. And it's been super interesting to watch it evolve because the mid nineties, nineteen ninety four, nineteen ninety five was really the very beginning. I mean, there had been things that had been occurring in the past. Uh, you know, the, the we had qualifying facilities in the past where you had independent power producers that went in and, and built some of these cogen facilities, but it never these guys never had, really had market based rate authority, the ability to trade and do very dynamic things. And so, when you have this industry like it was that had a lot of pent up uh, inefficiency in it, and then you start to take the gloves off, where you now allow innovation to flow in. It just sets an explosive environment in place. And I was super lucky to be, you know, on the on the tip of the supernova. That's awesome. Have you listened, by the way, to the uh, the Austin uh, area NPR channels um, disconnect podcast recently? I haven't. 
Oh my goodness. You got to check this out. Uh, I think it's Austin. I, I may be wrong on that, but it's definitely a Texas uh, NPR uh, public radio uh, group. And it's called The Disconnect, I think. Uh, and it goes into what happened in February uh, with the the Texas market going black and where and basically traces it all the way back to deregulation and looks at how ERCOT set up and looks at kind of what's what's uh, what's in store for the Texas market, how it might change, how renewables uh, inf- impacted, et cetera. Which I, I mean, I, I rarely take a moment in an interview to like praise another podcast, but if you haven't listened to that one, it is binge worthy. And yeah, uh, I'd, I'd definitely be interested in listening to it. I, I think, especially because a lot of folks that are not in the industry have opinions about stuff. And I find it dubious to believe that uh, competitive markets have any impact on any of this stuff. But because, you know, we had the same situation, nobody talks about Oklahoma had blackouts and it was it was a widespread issue. It had nothing to do with the fact that the markets here were deregulated. In fact, you had the same problem in the vertically integrated areas of Texas. So there's definitely what we've had to contend with is us changing the resource mix and and some it doesn't really have anything to do specifically with renewables. When we first opened the market in the early 90s uh, here, when we started really changing out the, the constituency of the generation facilities, uh, we had old antiquated types of projects. And so we've, we've really rebuilt the entire system really since the late 90s here in Texas. And so, yeah, there's, there's a there's so many very interesting confluence of events. Uh, it, Texas has always been much more subject to having these types of problems in the wintertime. Just an, it's just we're not built for it. We're not built for it. Like yeah. it's also an island that you can't actually like bring in power from somewhere else. It's all very it's limited kind of interconnection to other to other areas. So yeah, it's a it's a long conversation, but it's it's definitely an interesting deep dive. One of the, the sad things to me is that I mean, I guess that's the, kind of the state of the world that we live in today. Is that that event being somewhat traumatic for a lot of people here is kind of used as a political sledgehammer in lots of places mm. and things that make intuitive sense to people that don't really have a basis in reality. But I definitely want to listen to the podcast and see how close yeah. to the mark they got it. So I would love to, I'd love your feedback too. And when you, when you get a chance, just email me with, once you've, once you've listened to it and tell me if you think they, if they got close or not, because I've definitely told some folks that I think they should listen to it because um, obviously you, like you, you would listen to it having lived through deregulation in the market as a trader and, and maybe see things through, uh, through different lens. I'm not sure. You use a term that I want to make sure that we clarify or, or even define for folks, market-based rate authority. Can you help us understand what that means? Sure. So um, the way the federal government had set up through the FERC, uh, and, and I'm going to get out on the far tip of my regulatory hat. Uh, so, so basically, in a lot of these places, you didn't have the ability just to sell your electricity to an incumbent utility for whatever you want. You had to generate a tariff, and that tariff set forth the way you would, you know, what prices you could charge a utility for the electricity that you were producing. So often, you know, the way the regulated structure works for a lot of the investor-owned utilities or the vertically integrated utilities is they get a regulated return on their invested capital. So they might be able to sell at cost plus 10% to their customers. So what market-based rate authority basically allowed independent power producers to do is to sell their output for whatever the market would bear. They were no longer subject to not being able to sell it for more than 10% of what it cost them to produce it. Because if you have a cap in any individual hour, it guarantees you that you will lose money overall because there's no floor. There's only a cap. (laughs) 
So you're, you're never going to incent anyone to innovate and bring new technologies into the marketplace without some form of a market-based rate authority. Thank you for explaining that. And I think we'll get into a little more detail when, it, when we talk about customer choice. But uh, I mentioned earlier that you spent a lot of time in the power market. A lot of, a lot of the conversation we have here on Suncast is related to renewables, and, and we'll get to that. But I find that it's fundamentally important for folks to really understand how power markets work. You spent time, uh, as we talked about, with John Berger at uh, at Dynegy. Could you tell me well, a bit about- he was at about- Enron. I was at- Okay. Was, I traded against John. So oh, fun. I, I knew, him. yeah, he was on the opposite side of a lot of trades that- <laughs> Oh, how did. interesting. So I was at Dynegy and he was at Enron, but yeah. And what was it like at that uh, that time in the market? It was, uh, I mean, I kind of feel like it's probably the Wild West, but what did, it, what did it look like to be an energy trader at that point in the market? It was very fast and furious- a lot of it was um, how big can you put your positions on? A lot of psychology of, of, of who's coming in. At that time, not only did you have the large energy merchant players, but we had a lot of the utilities, domestic utilities that wanted to get their you know, unregulated arms trading in the, in the power markets. And we had some European utilities. So there was a ton of participants in that market. And it was very, very fast and furious. It also was coinciding that I think people forget about the 90s with the dot-com revolution. We we had this big change in electricity demand over the course of the 90s. So we had this super large increase in demand relative to what we had been seeing in the late 80s. And so, you know, we were moving into the Y2K time period. Loads were really ramping up. Um, you know, demand was picking back up and all the, not all of them, but as a general rule, what we saw were most of the investor owned utilities kind of saw deregulation coming and they didn't know what it was going to mean for them. And so what we saw was folks were delaying making decisions on building power plants or, or power infrastructure. So we had an increase in demand and a lot of the supply stuff was under, under uh, invested. And so there was just a lot of dynamicism that was happening exclusively on the wholesale side. So that was in the run up to California. I mean, I don't know the I don't know the specifics of how many power plants they built in California from, let's say, 1985 through 2000. But I can't imagine it was very many in comparison to how many of how much that load increased at that same time. So it was a it was a very interesting, dynamic time period with a lot of participants and uh and these guys had access to a lot of capital. And so a lot of these, we had people that were getting uh, taken, they were like, oh, the bond markets, trading United States treasuries is boring. Let's go trade electricity. Yeah. <laughs> so we had people coming in from you know all these different markets. So it was very interesting. I'd love to know, as you kind of reflect back now, sitting in the, the seat of a, of a retail energy uh, service provider, you know, what did you learn about the power markets and and specifically what kind of tools do you utilize now? Maybe even it's just mental models or management tools, but what from your from the from that maybe decade or two of work informs how you approach business today? Yeah, I mean, I think in very it's very clear to me that in empower the electricity is just fundamentally different than any other commodity that we deal with. And I'm sure you've had guests talk about this, you know, ad nauseum. But the fact that we can't store it and it's the ultimate, you know, real time, it's delivered, distributed and consumed instantaneously, and it has to be delivered within certain parameters, makes it fundamentally different. And I think having a good understanding of of what that means from a practical perspective and understanding how the physical infrastructure actually works 
you have to use that as a basis to inform decision-making in this space. It, it tells you a lot. It, you know, said in other words, in other markets, I think that you can move away from fundamentals. It's, it's easier to move away from the fundamental supply and demand relationship of what's actually happening in the marketplace. Power has a, has a, a feature to it as for as long as we lack sufficient commercial grade storage, it's going to it's going to have to tie much closer to what's happening in fundamentals. So it's an interesting insight. Unlike soybeans or cocoa or sugar or any of these other things, it just is, it fundamentally operates differently. So you really have to have your hands around what's happening with the fundamentals in order to have a sense of what's coming down the road. You know, we didn't get much into your your backstory about kind of your family life, but I wonder uh, a couple of things. The first is, is there a particular career path that you did not go down that you maybe thought you would? Yeah, I was uh, I was prepared to go down the road of being a physician. You know, I was excited about uh, I, I wanted to go into pediatric radiology. I loved the uh, chemical instrumental analysis and I loved some of the emergent technology of what was happening and some of the diagnostics. And I just really enjoyed working with kids. So I couldn't think of a better way to potentially spend my time than doing that. But when I finished school and, and uh, I had a lot of my classmates, I went to a pretty small school in Dallas and a lot of my classmates ended up coming down here to medical school in Houston. And they just got, we're just getting monkey hammered <laughs> with their first year of medical school. I was like, mm, maybe I'll take uh, maybe I'll turn this into a slightly uh longer, longer stint in the business world than I had imagined. But the reality is, like I said, because I got on the, the sort of the tip of the supernova that was where, where power went, it was almost impossible to go backwards. You know, it was crazy enough that with six months of, of experience in the, in the, this new world, I had as much experience as anyone else in the world. I, you know, I became an industry veteran with, you know, nine months under my belt. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I have, I've seen a lot of my, well, myself and a lot of my peers have a very similar story. I started a solar company in 2006, six months before the California solar initiative was signed into, uh, or actually was en- enacted. It was signed into law about three months prior to us starting the company, which is why we started it. And, um, in very, in very similar vein within maybe not six months, but certainly two years, uh, I was being recruited by, companies because they, they needed to start a solar division and they needed right. somebody that was an expert. And I was 28, 28 years old <laughs> and, right. um, and being recruited in as their first like solar business development person. So uh, I can it's totally identify. Yeah. yeah. And I think the same is happening now. Uh, and I, I, I tell folks now, like if you're thinking about where to lean in, I'd love your, your insights on this as well. But for folks that maybe are coming out of college now, or maybe even making that first career transition uh, maybe out of banking or something else, and are trying to get into energy and maybe even clean energy areas where you can really come up the learning curve very fast or energy storage uh, and uh, electric vehicles. You know, finding a Venn diagram of like your skill set and where those markets are starting to grow, and you can apply your skill set is is really uh, is really powerful. Where do you see uh, opportunities, especially within the Texas market, for folks that are trying to get into the power game now? You know, there still continues to be so much push and innovation. Um, and I think it, some of that's a feature of what's happened. I think obviously there's a sincere interest uh, in investing capital and in infrastructure. We're seeing that, you know, whether it's a, a broader ESG movement. I mean, I, I think if you have fully developed 
uh, solar projects that are ready to go at you know grid scale projects, your ability to source uh, financing and funding for those is probably significantly easier uh, in today's world than maybe three or four years ago. So there, there's so much that's sort of happening in that space, but we also have you know the thing that I always keep my eye on are, are what are the emergent technologies that are percolating maybe in other areas, other spheres. And how are those likely to be incorporated in what we are doing in energy? So, you know, maybe a good example of that, you'd, you'd said uh, electric vehicles. So let's say for the sake of argument that they're and you know, I guess it's maybe up in the air as to what will, will come from a legislation or a regulatory push. But if there's some form of mandatory EV uh, fractional percentage like we've seen in other places, that's a pretty, I think a lot of people don't have a good understanding of how massively materially big of a change that would be from what it does to the overall wholesale markets, because now we're adding a bunch of load during times that are already our highest demand times. So th- there's a huge material potentiality associated with that. I think there's a real infrastructure problem uh, around, I'm not sure that a lot of homes are set up uh, with their 150 amp or 200 amp service to really handle charging and the rest of those. They just weren't designed that way. So we have an infrastructure issue uh, that might potentially be out there that that needs a solution. Um, and then there's the the things that we're working on in Energy Ogre as part of the overall management is how do you how do you manage a charging cycle while minimizing costs? So that I think just even if you just took that small little sliver of what might be coming down in our space, there there are so many. There's so many tangents and so many w- ways to build a better mousetrap. And so in some cases, it's building the original mousetrap. And that's what's so exciting about all the, all the change that we see. And having a competitive market really provides a market-based incentive for folks to deliver value and to deliver real solutions. And, and it's happening here, I think, in a big way. So you step in as an authorized agent on behalf of consumers. You gave me an analogy before. If I imagine you're driving down the freeway and like every billboard you see is telling you that um, you, you can buy from a different energy supplier. That's kind of what it's like to be in a choice market, but nobody really knows how to track their use. And, and like you said, they procrastinate and they're lazy. What's your goal for a customer that signs up with Energy Ogre? Yeah, the goal is uh, quite simply to make sure that they stay in, you know, if we, if we think about, the spend of, you know, um, almost a price duration curve. Our goal is to have all of our customers in that bottom quartile or the bottom decile of the average costs from, you know, they're they're always going to be market-based costs, but we're looking to minimize uh, their expense within that market-based structure. And so there's a lot of machinations that might end up having to happen. We've got to revisit, keep looking at what, what new plans are coming out there. And then the actual logistics of, processing a request to change providers and then all the minutiae that flows along from that, like updating payment information and making sure you're not getting overcharged for things. So the, the, it, it, in, its, in its simplest sense, it really is trying to make sure that these folks stay in the bottom decile slash quartile, depending upon how they use electricity, but making it as simple as possible, making minimizing their need to intervene while still getting that benefit. Okay. It makes sense then uh, for me to conceptualize why then for you, you're in the business of education because not only through education, you attract clients, but your entire business is educating them on how they're using electricity so that you can compel them uh, to, to take 
specific actions or convince them that you are making specific actions on their behalf that they can trust. That's really interesting. Well, bringing it back to what I'd say the bulk of Suncast listeners maybe care about as an additional layer, what do you think that residential customers really need to consider when introducing solar to their home? And how do you think storage will play a key role in that moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think storage, uh, you know, commercial, commercially viable and, and all the emergent technologies around storage, whether it be battery technology, some other kind of a kinetic storage, that is the that is the biggest gate, I think, in terms of us getting a real explosion in in the adoption and the utilization, I should say, of of real renewable technologies. You know, we might have talked about this before, but I, I think that, you know, the issue of renewable energy, the issue of what should win, uh, it allows, storage allows renewable technologies to compete on a heads-up basis with every other form of energy generation. And I think that fundamentally... Renewable technologies should win in the long run, even even on economics alone, because there's there's no fuel cost. And so, if we can scale the and, and and have smart people continue to work on material sciences around how we lower the cost to produce these generators, we lower those capital costs for installation. They'll all they, they, there should be a point in time when there it's just a no brainer to outcompete an asset that has a fuel input transportation or extraction cost embedded in its overall cost structure it should just happen. But in terms of consumers thinking about these things, I mean, there are definitely geographies and places in the country where it is just so obvious to me, at least I'm from the outside looking in, uh, particularly if you can supplement that with some kind of storage, uh, you know, I think a place like maybe like in Hawaii or in some parts of California, I don't pay as much attention to what residential uh, customers are paying in some of these other markets. And I get I always get a little, <laughs> a, little <laughs> a, a little shocked and awed uh, at some of the uh, price per kilowatt hour. I mean, last time I looked at what these numbers uh, were in California it made perfect sense to me why. Uh, you know, so many folks have, have have focused. I mean, if you're if you're paying twenty five to thirty five cents a kilowatt hour for electricity, thank goodness y'all have or the folks in California have much better weather. They don't have the air conditioning demand that we do here in Texas. But it's uh, it's very obvious that um, it tends to make it from from the little that I've looked at it. It's it's very obvious that it's uh, makes sense from a from a dollars and cents perspective. And I think we have a little bit of a patchwork all over you know, the country of, of what, what are the regulatory schemes and, and how much, like you said, there's a, a lever of that some of the regulators and state governments use to incent industry. Well, sometimes you know, it works the other way around, too, is that you know, the, 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 the residential consumers, since they're probably less mobile than some of these businesses are, there, there may be less concern for providing the same kind of breaks to them that there are to, to incense some of the other behaviors that they're looking for. Are you making recommendations to customers about the kinds of technology, maybe including renewables, that they should be adopting? So we definitely have people that ask us, you know, what should we be doing? We see there's you know, some of that follows in from the incentives that we're seeing and some of the the, the tax schemes. And, and there were folks that were, were looking to take advantage of that. We have a, a large amount of our customer base that has 
Uh, you know, so particularly more in North Texas and some of the other folks in, in more kind of West Texas, uh, as we approach, we, we, we see more of that. We try not to make a specific recommendation uh, because it's very difficult to do that without having all the site information and really understand what the goal that that customer is looking to achieve. You know, we have we have definitely people that, that are worried about, you know, Mad Max scenario and they want to. Um, you know, be completely independent. And so I always ask him, how many acres do you have? <laughs> how big is that? How much are you willing to spend on that? You know, so, so there's, there's these other outcomes that are not purely economic. There may be other considerations that folks are, are working towards. So, um, but we definitely have the ability to integrate. It's very easy for us to integrate a customer that has, uh, you know, solar rooftop installation. What that really does is it makes the home as we look at the actual usage profile, it just makes it look like it has a smaller footprint. And it's just very easy for us to manage that in a way. Does that mean less revenue for you? I mean, I guess one of the things I haven't really asked is how how do you make money? Like where where yeah, do you sit in the overall revenue stack? Yeah, we we uh, are just a subscription based service. So we we charge it's a postage stamp. Um, we don't we don't receive any bounties or any fees or revenues from any of the retailers. We we made this decision um, because no one was really a hundred percent on the side of the of the consumer. Like even if you're a broker, a broker is an interested, you know, they're a self-interested party trying to put a willing buyer and seller together, but they have a profit motive on what that settlement price is. They may get a piece or percentage of that. We we don't. We don't have anything to do with that. We made a decision at the inception to say we want to be a fiduciary, which is what you need to do be as an agent that we have to put our customers' interests uh, before our own. And and coming up with a structure like this should provide the comfort to people that we're managing that we have a duty of care. Not only is it what we want to do, we have a legal duty of care to put their interests first. So we, we only get paid by these customers and we try to minimize that program cost as much as possible. So it's like $10 a month. It's a, it's a hamburger a month to uh, have us help you. And why do they choose to interface through Energy Ogre? Is it, is it to, to so that they stay in that bottom decile, bottom quartile? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't really understand the magnitude of maybe how much they're overpaying. And so it's like, oh, you guys can get me access. But what we find is that uh, the convenience of just not having to worry about it anymore and the peace of mind that they're in that realm is where we end up keeping our customers in the long run. It's just we've taken care of it for them. And they're like, I don't, it's one less thing I have to worry about on a going forward basis. And it's, it's, uh, you know, the value is just pays for itself. No, not even is a no brainer. When it comes to the nexus of some of the things you talked about before, smart home technology and solar panels in terms of managing energy of the home efficiently, what advice or insights do you find that your team is often providing or, or that clients are asking guidance on? Yeah, I think what, you know, you you might see more of this than I ever would. The piece of it that trickles down to us is, you know, I think we, we definitely have our customers and new customers that, that are more interested, that, that adoption rate or interest level in solar installations is definitely increasing. Uh, so I, I see some folks that may be good at, I don't, I don't know how to assess who in the installation world or who in the sales world, who, who are good actors and who are kind of bad actors in some of that space. Um, you know, s- some of these folks will, will come to me and say, hey, this, this particular person, it's great. They're good. You know, let's say the competitive market's 10 cents and, and um, they're getting offered 
you know, buy the output at 15 cents for 25 years. It may not be a good economic decision for them, but there may be other maybe other considerations. I, I don't I don't have enough ability to look through each one of these customers' specific situations to understand what makes sense from a how 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 large the size of systems. Right. Right. So, yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't that mean that? Uh, and I'm, I want to make sure I understand this from a consumer advocacy perspective. Yeah, you know, I can guarantee somebody listening to this show is going to reach out to you and say, "Hey, I can help you with that." Because <laughs> there, I can think of five. I can think of five solar companies right now. I can help you with that. But sure. um, because sizing the system isn't isn't a particularly difficult process right now, and there are ways to do it remotely. Where you sit in the marketplace, does that make Energy Ogre like a potential channel partner for, say, some of the commercial commercial solar or some of the solar finance teams? Or where in the marketplace would folks be potentially able to partner with Energy Ogre or vice versa? Well, we certainly do that today with, mm-hmm. we're not partnering with them, but we facilitate uh, green products for these customers that are that are baked into the wholesale products, right? So okay. they're, they're baked into the structure. So we, we have a non-trivial fraction of our customer base that says to me, hey, renewable energy is important. I want green types of plans. If I'm buying this energy, whether right, I'm- Because you're producing- putting rate plans together for them. Right. So we oftentimes, and so we'll have renewable-based uh, plans that are uh, not only 100% renewable or 50% renewable, but um, you know, there's opportunities because of the way the REC scheme is set up here to say, well, we can do that on a super green basis. We can retire 500% of your demand in renewables. So there's, there's a, there are a number of other market-based metrics that we put in place to try to accommodate those wishes and those desires. I have no issue as a fiduciary assisting any customer making any decision that they want to make as long as they have all the facts in front of them, right? So if if someone decides that, hey, I want to put this system in place on my home and I know I'm going to be paying 12 cents for 10 years or whatever that is, and I know the competitive market's nine cents, I'm good with that. This is my aspiration. This is what I want to do. Then we are yeah. 100% on board. Got it. Okay. It's the situation we have people say, well, you know, hey, you know, the uh, we had a crisis in February. This put this solar system in place, and you'll never, you'll never be out of power again. Like, well, no, <laughs> that's not how any of this works. But you know, people people don't know enough about the way electricity is produced and delivered, and there's a, a lot of room. Let's talk about that. The interplay of wind and solar on the market is a vastly under a misunderstood uh, element. How do renewables work together to provide energy for the grid? And we'll talk about Texas as an example. So it's interesting. I think that um, if I look at the Texas situation, it's wildly different than the California situation. Mm-hmm. You know, here, here, not only did you mention before that, you know, we're, we're for all intents and purposes, we're electrically an island. Um, we're, we're electrically, uh, we're not synchronously interconnected with the, the other two uh, United States interconnections. And so, yeah, we're definitely kind of, we're on our own. And what's happened over the years is we have displaced a lot of the old uh, gas steam fire generation and a lot of the old coal fire generation because uh, we've had wind that has come in and, you know, wind is uh, fuel is free, low cost, uh, a variable operation. I know there's a major maintenance accrual associated with it, but it's, it's a low variable cost of operation. And what we've seen is there's been so much and the tax incentives have been so large that we brought so much wind into place that it's made it very difficult for the, these other tra- traditional technologies to compete, which is OK. That's exactly what you want in an open and free and competitive market. And so 
what we've had is the complexion, the percentage of our installed capacity that's wind-based is just gargantuan in comparison to any other part of the United States. I mean, we're kind of the Saudi of wind generation. I, I think someone told me, and if I read this correctly, you know, Texas would be the fourth largest producer of wind in the world. And, you know, one of the ones ahead of it is the United States, but that includes Texas. So it's, uh-huh. uh, it's you know, and... And that it's in the same quarter where like Oaxaca, Mexico, it falls in that same uh, tranche of top four. Yeah, it's 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 pretty crazy. So so we produce, you know, you, you can look at it over the years, the the delivered megawatt hours, the percentage that's delivered by wind and other renewables uh, has been consistently increasing over time. So I would I know people don't have this idea of Texas of being, you know, you know, grid scale, environmentally friendly, or people think it's oil barons and all that stuff. And um, we have almost no coal here. Uh, We have almost all of our natural gas fire generation is like brand new. It's like the most efficient and cleanest natural gas fire generation there is. And we have a, a, just a ton of wind capacity. So our, our, our emissions per megawatt hour are very, very low in comparison, I think to almost every other part of the United States. We just happen to consume a lot more electricity because of the climate here uh, than you would in other parts of the country. So, so there's been a, a huge change, and there's been challenges associated with that because most of the wind is geographically proximal to itself. And so what's happened is, is that we have a lot of wind that was put in places where the site cost to install those, the, the leasing expense was relatively low, and there was a, a, a reasonable uh, wind profile for some of these locations. So we, we ended up putting 25,000 megawatts of wind, but it's all kind of in the same place. And as a result, what ends up happening is our output with wind is kind of binary. We, we end up getting a lot of it or almost none of it. <laughs> we don't have a, a huge geographic diversity of the location of those sources. So that has definitely lent itself to some incremental challenges. A lot of the locations up there, the profile of output, even when it does show up, uh, we tend to get a lot in the, in the earlier, uh, earlier morning hours. And then we start to get stuff kind of in the evening hours and the transition day to night, night to day. And that's not entirely synchronized with the way uh, the wholesale uh, demand, the, the grid scale demand actually works. It's a little counter cyclical, but We've had this amazing, you know, market-based emergent solution, which is what this is all about, where folks said, uh-huh, well, it's interesting. You know, if I were to put these solar facilities in place, amazingly enough, right when wind is starting to drop down, solar is starting sun to pick comes up. up. And as soon as the sun starts to go down, then we start to get our output back on wind. So what we have yeah. is a very happy circumstance now where because we started with all of this infrastructure and wind all the incremental solar that we're bringing online is very complementary to the traditional output. So between those two technologies, even without grid scale storage, we are getting to much more predictable outcomes and commercially manageable, viable grid scale. And it's not like small. We're talking, you know, ERCOT's Installed capacity, I would have to go back and look at it, but I imagine it's about 90,000 megawatts, maybe a little bit less than that now with retirements. And, you know, of that of that 
88 or 90, whatever that is, at least 30 of that's renewables, at least. I mean, and it may be more like 35,000. So it's it's a huge fraction. Uh, and it's, you know, it's the variable fraction that shows up on a day in a day out basis. So it's probably one of the world's largest experiments in using renewable technologies to actually, you know, power the way things are working. Uh, and it's been it's been neat to watch these market based solutions work. And it's going to be even more um, fascinating because unlike other markets, notably Hawaii and uh, Puerto Rico and California, where by and large their uh, IOUs, uh, they're not deregulated markets, the Texas market is load balancing with renewables and increasingly storage in a way that other markets are not. Where other markets, because like you mentioned, California, when you're paying utility commercial rates in the 11 to 19 cents a kilowatt hour in some cases rates uh, on time of use, they're doing more TOU shifting, right? They're moving uh, loads from one time of day to another. Whereas in Texas, because it's market-based, the the storage experiments that are happening are going to fundamentally change the way the algorithm works. And I think it's going to be really fun to watch it. Kind of circling back to your role as a consumer advocate and providing green energy um, in quotes, I like to use in quotes when in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the reality is that uh, as a consumer advocate, you have to sort of raise the flag sometimes and say, hey, uh, just like in the solar industry where residential uh, homeowners are getting fleeced by salespeople knocking on their doors, selling them an otherwise, you know, let's call it $1.50 to $2 watt product at $4 a watt and taking the $1.50 as profit. The same thing happens in these kind of energy credit markets. Can you give an example? And I think wind is a great place to, to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we see that all the time. And that's one of the things we try to counsel. And, and we've looked for some other solutions to basically bypass the greedy, the, the maybe the greedy bastard quotient, I don't know, <laughs> for lack of a better term. But yeah, yeah. what we see is, and, it, and, it, and it, it's frustrating because what we see is some folks saying, hey, renewables are really important to me. Green plans are of the most important. And and you look, and so we say, okay, well, the universe of green plans is a smaller universe of, it's a subset of all the plans. And when we, we look at that, some what's happened is some of the competitive retailers say, well, why would I want to be competitive on my green plans? What I, what I have is someone that's basically signaled me that they're price insensitive. So, you know, I'm going to look at what my competitor is doing and why would I try to compete with him on those prices. So we see that a lot where the liquidity in some of the renewable plans is not quite as good and the effective rates are much higher than what they should be because the way these retailers are actually putting those plans in place is they're retiring renewable energy credits on behalf of those customers. They're not tracing green megawatts from you know one power plant to the other. And we see that too It'll be interesting what happens in the aftermath of a lot of these small retailers going out of business post-February. It's, it's, there's been a number that, that are not in the market anymore, but you know, they would advertise, hey, we're putting a new plant up and we're selling our power from this plant. I assure you, you are not selling your power from that plant, right? So, so there's a lot of misinformation that comes there and we try to counsel people. Um, the, the good news is, is that we always have the ability to fall back as a fiduciary and say, you know, I'm just going to make the best decision for you. I'm going to make a decision for you as though I were in your situation. I'm going to manage your house like it's my house and make the best overall decision. So it, the good news is it does allow us to work with some of these retailers to say, hey, I have someone that wants to you know, pay you a premium to provide this premium product. 
but you're going to have to do it on a cost-effective basis. We know what it costs you to do this. Obviously, we're not here for you guys to go out of business. You need to make a margin on some of this stuff, but it has to be a reasonable margin, not an unreasonable margin. Yeah. And an example of an unreasonable margin that you share with me prior in that in terms of like wind energy uh, arbitrage is like buying, for example, at $12 a year and selling at $300 a year. Not unlike the example that I shared in solar. Uh, You know, the the cool thing is, as we talked about, there's a lot of technology uh, as data gets increasingly pushed to cloud uh, based computing. There's a lot of technology that is stepping in uh, and, and allowing this trace ability. There's a company that just recently rebranded uh, to ClearTrace. We interviewed Zach, their VP of sales out of Austin. And I don't know if you know these guys, but and I'll point this out, an example of like how eventually like this is kind of trickle down economics. So they're looking at companies like Amazon and Facebook and uh, Walmart that want to be able to trace that the power they are, in fact, buying from for themselves and from suppliers uh, or from folks downstream of them that they're requiring to buy renewables are coming from green sources. And so ClearTrace is one example of like help, helping basically trace those carbon credits and trace the, the green footprint of the power. And as we see these kinds of innovations roll out for retail, they're going to eventually be adapted to consumers and companies like Energy, Energy Ogre and be able to apply that learning to help their customers and advocate on behalf of their customers. Well, I, I tell you what you just pointed out is really absolutely true. And that's what we see is, you know, the things that we're doing for residential customers, they're things that were done for commercial customers when the market opened. People would do this for a building, the kinds of things that I'm doing, they would do for a building, maybe with a different profit motivation or a different, you know, fiduciary type structure, because it was easy to do and you got a lot of scale. It's hard to do this at the residential level. You know, you you may have to do 10,000 people to make up for the one customer you otherwise have. But that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing these technologies, and this is true with demand response and demand management and all these other emergent technologies. We're not reinventing the wheel. What we're doing is we're actually pushing this down the value, the size chain, the value chain. And it is these emergent technologies that allow that to be done on a cost-effective basis. That's, That's exactly right. You're probably familiar with Energy Toolbase. I mean, nearly 1,500 organizations worldwide utilize ETB Developer to quantify the savings and economics of their projects. But did you know that ETB provides a comprehensive suite of software products to help model, control, and monitor solar and energy storage projects all in one platform? That's right. I know you're probably familiar with their industry-leading modeling, but controls, monitoring? Yeah. Acumen EMS software is actually fully integrated with energy storage giants like BYD, Delta, Dynapower, and Sokomec, leveraging AI and machine learning to forecast, control, and optimally discharge energy storage systems operating in the field. Or maybe you are looking for ETB Monitor to gain complete transparency into the operational performance and true dollar savings of your operating fleet. Well, if I were you, I'd schedule a Zoom with one of ETB's knowledgeable account managers you can mention Suncast when you sign up for your free trial and you get a 30-day extended free trial. You can also just click on the tool-based logo at mysuncast.com or in our newsletters or right there in the description of today's episode in whatever app you're listening to this on to take full advantage of this free trial. Don't wait. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people 
who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. <laughs> but that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. Well, Justin, I've really enjoyed the ability to uh, talk very specifically and also wax philosophically with you about the implications of our industry on an energy market where obviously we're talking about a very dynamic and active kind of melting pot and experiment, a cauldron, if you will, in the Texas market in particular. I'd like to take a step back and think again about from a career perspective, what advice we might be able to offer to others who are, you know, coming along behind you. You've got a tremendous amount of experience, both as an operator and now as an entrepreneur. Uh, when you think about the influences that have Im- impacted your overall ability to kind of show up as a CEO now, what are some of the key lessons or takeaways for you from the mentors in your life who helped make that possible? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, early on in my professional career, it was very much a sink or swim kind of environment. So you know, the lessons that I learned are you know, getting good at pattern recognition, like being able to see things and getting comfortable making decisions. That's one thing that I think we all struggle with as we, you know, we grow and having the confidence in, in some of the decision making. But, you know, it's very easy to get analysis paralysis if I wait. Uh, it's, it's hard to know if I wait a little bit more, am I going to make a much better decision and, and getting comfortable with deci- making a decision and, and getting comfortable with how much information do you need to have to make a reasonably good decision? Do you have time to wait? Do you not have time to wait? And getting a feel for some of those things may be kind of more, you know, the 201 level versus the 101 level of, of yeah. how to do some of that stuff. But to me, critical analytical thinking skills and trying to see patterns in things that are harder to see otherwise those are some of the fundamental skills that were developed in me early in my professional career of just, you know, fostering, well, why, why do you think that is? And what, it's almost the Socratic method I had with folks who would say, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why that would happen. And just gets you thinking about what are the motivations of the different players that are in this space. And so having a deeper understanding of why things are happening or trying to understand how, how that came to be and what part of that might be wrong and what kind of an edge is there uh, in, in correcting those things, it just starts to invade your thought process. Hmm. I know it's kind of esoteric, but no, not, you know, not at all. I, kind of question, question stuff and just, just continuing to think, does that make sense? Right. Um, I think that's an important skill that was fostered in me early on. I love it. Uh, was there anybody in particular who, uh, was it kind of the market and the, sort of the environment, the boiler room, or were there influences like people that helped you come to those early realizations? Yeah, there's tons of people. Usually it was, um, I didn't want to embarrass myself in, <laughs> in a universe of, of like super high gray matter individuals. So it was definitely a crucible of uh, high gray matter folks. And so what happens is it pushes you to, you know, if, if my my boss, I had a couple of them that were just so whip smart and quick on the draw and command of information 
that it forced you to make, make sure that you had, you know, all your stuff in order, talking to them and think through these things because there was no room for you to have an off the cuff, you know, reaction or answer. You, you really needed to be able to think through analytically. And so it was that it was very much that environment. So, I mean, I had, you know, our, our CEO at the time was a gentleman named uh, Steve Bergstrom. And uh, I think Steve is running part of one of the Arclight's funds or, you know, he's, he's with a big fund. Uh, another guy that I worked for, uh, Matt Schatzman, was definitely in that in that vein. And Matt uh, was at BG for a long time. And I think he's doing something with, uh, you know, with LNG today. So it, the, these guys are just a lot of very high gray matter individuals that will push you. And uh, that was the that was the crucible that I, that I started my, my welcome Welcome to the real world moment. So, but it was fun. I love it. There's a book uh, that I recommend a lot called The Business of Expertise. And he points to the very two things that you said, like, and especially this is for folks that have already maybe developed a career and they're looking at uh, coaching others. Uh, that's what that book is about. But it talks about pattern recognition and decision-making as uh, as critical elements. It's funny because, um, I don't say it's funny, it's, it's very confirming. As a father, uh, I find that like, you know, as a father, you want to help your children uh, focus on what the important things are. Like some things are just not important. Like they're going to learn how to tie their shoes. If they, uh, don't get it, like I give my kids, you know, laceless shoes so that they don't have to, like, I don't have to worry about spending 10 minutes just crying over that, but picking out which shoes to put on, like that's decision-making and it shouldn't be hard. It's, it's just a fundamental skill that you have to develop. So like, I'll give you two pairs of shoes that don't have laces, but I don't want to hear you, you know, whine and cry about which ones you're going to wear. But also the pattern recognition, oh gosh, like it, I don't know if you have any resource for besides the crucible of the trading energy, like h- how would you counsel someone to start getting good at pattern recognition? Because I'm not sure that's a skill that we're taught in, in high school or college or anything. It's, it's like you have to you have to have a good mentor that points out where you aren't matching patterns well. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that's true. I think for me, the transition that I tried to do, I mean, I don't know there's a good resource other than the, me trying to tell you what I do from a mentoring my own employees and the folks that I work with is, is, you know, when, when I look at some of my younger folks that come in here, I have a lot of folks that might have, you know, come directly out of uh, college. And what's happened is, is that, um, you know, through high school, uh, you might have electives, but everyone's on the same path and it's kind of paint by numbers. The amount of time you have to invest in thinking about why would I do like why would I do this or why would I want to take that? It's kind of what's everybody else taking? Oh, you're in. You're going to take, uh, you know, Gen Kim. Okay, that's that's the elective I have to take. And then as you start to move into, you know, the the ones that had the chance to go to college, there's kind of a break point where you, you know, some folks might say, well, that's hard, and I don't know that I want to go do that, and they might want to go in a different path. But now you you have to start kind of thinking for yourself, and you have to. It's not laid out for you. It's not the okay. Well, here's. It's not you know, folks are spoon feeding you. Here's the next step. It's not, you know, up, down, B, A, you know, Z. And you, you get, you have to start thinking through, you have to start to plan things out. And I think what happens is the pattern recognition falls out of paying attention because then you'll start to see, well, that's interesting. That's very similar to what I saw. Like, I don't think you can focus on building that goal by itself, I think that it comes from being more invested in really digging into and trying to learn everything you can in the things that you're seeing around you to have a good understanding of what are the concepts that are behind these things that I'm seeing. And that's where you start to slowly have that light shine 
down on starting to say, this is analogous to this other thing that I've seen. And if that worked this way over here, maybe I can a- a- apply that to this, this new situation. And so that, that's, that's kind of what I see. And that's, that's how I try to mentor the folks that, that work over here. Yeah. I tell you, I wish uh, a lot of folks ask me questions about starting a podcast. Starting a podcast for me was a really selfish move. Um, number one, I wanted to have a, I wanted to have a brand, like a personal brand. I wanted to be known as uh, a podcaster and I wanted to have a, an easier door to open to conversations with people like you, candidly. But I recognized uh, that what a mentor of mine had told me was it was painfully true. Uh, um, and, and I won't, uh, I'll, I'll share a, a small snippet of it here for the sake of those who maybe get caught in this. It's easy, like I, I was caught in the fascination with Latin America. Well, Latin America, like other markets that I could show are analogous, it moves slower, uh, necessarily slower than, say, the New York market, right? When, um, when Nyserta or, uh, or California or, or Nevada were blowing up, even from a commercial and utility scale solar project perspective, there were folks, not, not my age, like five, 10 years younger than me, who were analyzing maybe five, 10 deals a day. And I was looking at five, 10 deals a week on a good week. We were bringing to bringing to um, to the decision sort of council maybe one to two deals a month. Whereas if you're working uh, through that many deals in, let's say, the New York market, you're going to probably be making decisions uh, on one to two deals a day, maybe um, maybe ten deals a week uh, at the CNI utility scale thing. And so what happens is uh, you get to exercise that muscle, right? And if you find yourself in a place that you enjoy, but you're not getting to exercise nearly as much as your peers in other markets, you know, like you're in sales for solar. So the na- the necessary sales cycle for a CNI solar job is like three to six months. Well, my friends who were in software selling to enterprise, it was three to six days, right? <laughs> right? And they became vastly, they became compensated better, um, faster than me. They became um, more adept at managing large accounts faster than me, right? So you start looking around to your point and, and analyzing like, how am I even through choosing things I want, crippling my ability to grow uh, and how can I navigate and move in the marketplace? So like, back to me doing a podcast, like it was selfishly an opportunity for me to start recognizing patterns of entrepreneurship that I could uh, apply to my own business and I could apply to my own coaching clients uh, skills Heck and, yeah. and help I mean, their business. You know, I'm a huge believer. Uh, I have a personal philosophy that, that basically centers around, I know I'm going to make mistakes um, I, I try to consider them tuition. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the, <laughs> the, my, my biggest, uh, my biggest goal is to not pay tuition twice. I don't want to, I don't want oh, yeah. to pay for the same course twice. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I talk to other, you know, you know, success is a very strangely defined, like we, we tend to really laud, the folks that that have you know monetary outward stuff is successful. I mean, there's a lot of different metrics associated with success. You know, not not to sound completely theoretical about some of this stuff. It's obviously the easiest one for us if we're trying to take care of families and whatnot. But you can learn lessons from other people without paying tuition by by learning through their mistakes. You can avoid having to pay for that course by paying attention and, and working with other folks and understanding some of these things. So. I think what you're talking about in terms of you know, developing a podcast and being able to impart your knowledge and, and your experience to other folks and help them on their path and then get that same information back is there, there's a lot there, there's a lot to be said for that without a doubt. Mm. Jessam, uh, I believe that leaders are readers, and it's not universally true, but I find that often it is. Where have 
books particularly been useful in terms of giving you insights and leverage in your career? Are, are there is there a book or two maybe that you've recommended or gifted a lot uh, as a as an example of that? Yeah, you know, I know it's 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 kind of strange, but I I personally am kind of an introvert. You know, I, I, from from a CEO type perspective, you know, a CEO is an outward an outward facing role and a COO is kind of more of an inward facing role and being more of an in the weeds kind of person. I think historically, I'd probably, although I've been a CEO here and in my previous businesses for some time, I'm, I'm much more naturally inwardly focused. And so I think, you know, the having the right answers and being able to communicate effectively and, and understand what that needs to, how you need to work effective teams. Teamwork was this big buzzword when I first came into the business world. And, you know, I, I just kind of thought it was HR speak and are you a team player? And I'm like, geez, do you want the work done or do you not want it done kind of situation? But as, as I've grown and, and as I've you know, started to take over different things, I really realized that effective leadership uh, really has to do with really maximizing um, the growth potential of folks in the team. And the team aspect really is important. It's not it's not uh, a theoretical, it's not a feels like, it's not some social experiment to make us feel good. There's true practical value for the, the team members and then the overall goal accomplishment from that team structure. And so I've tried to think of, well, what are some of the most successful examples of teams that have existed over time? And, you know, rightly or wrongly, what we find is that military types of of experiences and how to run organizations and teams and um, inspiring people and imparting knowledge. I just found that there's so many good examples of folks in the military world that can teach folks outside of that their lessons. And of course, not all of them are transferable. Not all of them are applicable. And there's other kinds of lessons that, that may be lost on folks that don't have experience in this space. But I, I started reading some books. There's a gentleman by the name of Jocko Willink. And so I've, I've read quite ownership. a bit. Yeah, extreme ownership. I've, I've read quite a few of his his books in terms of how how you know he has dealt with and his advice with respect to uh, dealing with leadership and uh, fostering team environments. And he kind of has an interesting uh, background outside of being a, a SEAL. Not only did he sort of work on some of the more interesting things, but he he actually went through the gambit of coming through from an enlisted side all the way through into the officer ranks. And so got a very interesting understanding of how that works, at least in, in that military community. I think there are a lot of analogs and there's things to take across. So if there were one little piece I think is important, um, I, I've gotten quite a bit out of out of reading uh, some of what he and, and Leif and some of guys put together. So are, are there any particular books that you like? I mean, obviously, Extreme Ownership is one he's probably most well known for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd have to go back and look, dust off the the bookcase over here. <laughs> but sure. you know, I, 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 have a, I have an unfair advantage that I'm looking at. Uh, I'm looking at Amazon. I'll list a few of the ones. I mean, I love that. Actually, he's got Way of the Warrior Kid. Yep. which is a fantastic uh, children series. Um, he's got an, uh, this just this tome uh, called Discipline Equals Freedom. That is I a fantastic. That that's a great that's manual. A great book as well. mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read uh, Mark Divine? I do have some of Divine stuff, yeah. I recommend Mark Divine a lot because I think that he, like Jocko, puts into uh, practical application uh, military principles for business leadership. Right. That's cool. It's it's really interesting that 
Um, literally back to back yesterday, I interviewed, uh, Nate over at IGS solar and he, uh, talked about extreme ownership and Jocko right? as well. And we, <laughs> and we had this long conversation about Mark divine. So if anybody's listening to these back to back they're they're going to think, uh, I'm stuck in the, I'm stuck in a little, uh, vortex here, but, um, well, thank you. I actually greatly appreciate when someone can not just say like, I like, uh, this particular book here, but here's a type of book and why. And, um, and I think that's just as valuable to think about what are the meta themes that you want to extract uh, and how do you look for the kinds of books that are going to help you learn that do you have any other particular morning routines or perhaps habits or consistent practices that have given you uh, yielded great leverage in your personal or business life you know i think i try to ingest as much information as i possibly can i've kind of gotten to the point where i think as i've as i've gotten a little bit um a little bit older it's easier to differentiate interesting stuff from refuse, <laughs> mm. you know, things that are in their rabbit trails that are not worth uh, wasting my time on. Can you give me an example of like how you filter that? Because I find that that's something that like very few people actually can distill. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same thing that we talked about before is thinking, does this make sense? Or in the context of the things that I already know, is this a likely outcome? You know, like you might say, someone says, Hey, you know, scientists invents, whatever change the world technology and then you can look at some claims that are in there like well that's not really how that works from the way i understand it and so you can you can start to see that some of these things are you know written by maybe a journalist that doesn't have a really good fundamental grasp of what they're talking about so but i really try to focus on emergent technologies Uh, i'm really trying you know I'm, i'm very interested i well to back up for a second I believe that we are right at the precipice of a major step change in 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 how we manufacture energy and how we manufacture a lot of different things. I think that right now we're we're beginning this material sciences revolution, or it's just beginning, and it has to do with increases in computational power that allows us to identify and and, and figure out new combinations of the way we put the things that we're all used to together in different formats to yield stronger, cheaper, faster, more effective materials. Those material science advancements are going to are going to bleed out into all of these technologies either becoming much more widespread, newer types of, of, of products and services that are available, or actually making them cost effective enough to to push those down into other parts of the world or, or what we're doing. So I'm really always looking at what's 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 kind of the front end, not necessarily in the academic paper side of what's happening in, in the in material science space or in the physical technologies, but what's the, what's kind of coming out in the in the non PhD level stuff. What, what's coming out for a, a a technical reader? It's still distilled down into like real person speak, but it's not uh, it's not the abstracts themselves. Where do you look for those insights? Where are you filtering that? So, you know, there are a number of places, obviously there's some of the, um, some of the academic publications themselves. There's a great website, um, that I think has snippets of some of these things that allow you to do a deep dive just from a categorization perspective. It's called science daily. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. run to science daily. I don't go often no. Yeah, there's a, there's, it's a great site. I, I tend to keep it up and refresh it, you know, daily. I'll, I'll look at that in the morning and, and if there's, Something that I'm seeing here, like, okay, well, this may end up coming down in our industry in five years, or this is kind of an interesting take, just because I do think that we're beginning this technology adoption process in in the energy side, only because 
it's such a focus today with ESG. It's such a focus from a regulatory perspective. Um, it's such a focus from what consumers are demanding that it's inevitable that that's where a lot of the efforts are going to be pushed. And so having a little bit of a crystal ball of ways some of these things might be coming down the road in three to five years, I think is helpful from a positioning perspective. Um, so that that's that's how I typically start my my day after my coffee. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely link to that. One of the other resources that we've talked about recently is Visual Capitalist, which uh, yep. for visual learners like myself, it's just one of those great areas where you can learn a lot about economics and uh, and see graphs and charts that help you really like distill uh, the wisdom of of uh, data. Uh, well, Justin, I, I, we could we could talk for hours. Uh, in fact, we have, and I, I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> But where, where can folks who want to learn more about you or Energy Ogre, where can they best find you personally and how can they engage with your company? Yeah, well, so I'm a, I'm a little bit of a ghost on social media, which I think probably <laughs> is uh, consistent with <laughs> with uh, with your what persona. I said of being slightly more introverted yeah. than extroverted. Uh, so, you know, definitely there's there's a room to interact with me here through uh, through the company. Definitely uh, love to talk to folks and impart whatever knowledge I can. Uh, Like I said, our our core mission is a function of education. But if you want to learn more about Energy Ogre or kind of what we're doing or how we're doing it or um, see how we have fun doing what we're doing, uh, I know that electricity is about as enjoyable as going to the dentist for some folks. So so we try to make it as fun as we can. But our our website is energyogre.com. There are a number of resources on there. Um, there's some free resources for folks that are in the competitive areas to help them understand how how competitive their existing rates are versus what it should be. Even if you don't want me to do it for you, I want you to have the information so you can go make a better decision. We, we try to put as much stuff up there and I love the feedback. And if there's things, you know, I think it's particularly good for folks that are not in the competitive area um, I'd love to get the feedback from folks like, how does this work? Or this doesn't make sense to me because it, it allows us to increase the, the, the knowledge base and the appeal. So I, I love getting the feedback from, from, uh, from everyone who has a chance to come visit. That's cool. Well, we've got a bunch of folks in the Suncast tribe who are educators and they've created a bunch of content uh, and, and they're actually in the, in the consumer advocacy space as well. So a similar question, perhaps how can the Suncast audience help? How can they help you? How can they help our overarching, our overarching goals? Yeah. I mean, I think um, to the extent that, that I can help, um, you know, personally provide someone knowledge that they might not really fully understand about what's happening in some really weird esoteric part of the the wholesale business, you know, I, I'm happy to do so. Um, sounds like you've got a really, uh, you know, large, uh, you know, a tribe of, of folks uh, on, on the bandwagon with what you're accomplishing there. So, I mean, anything that we can do that meets those goals of trying to deliver overall better products and services to consumers on a cost-effective mm-hmm. basis I'm, yeah. I'm all about it. So I'm, I'd love to, well, to link up with, with folks that, that share a similar passion and interest. Yeah. Well, there you have it. If you are listening to this and you want to contribute or just connect with uh, Justin and Energy Ogre team, obviously you can go to their website, which we'll link in the show notes, but you can also just email me and I'll ask uh, Justin if it's appropriate to make a connection for you. If you want to share resources that Energy Ogre can leverage, then uh, obviously uh, you can use uh, Suncast here as a channel to to communicate in that way as well. Well, Justin, let's, uh, and I'll note that Justin is uh, notably missing from LinkedIn. So for those of us who are 
who are avid on LinkedIn, you'll find other Energy Ogre team members there, but not, uh, and including Justin's partner, but but not him. So, uh, Justin, let's wrap today with our final question, which is always a bold prediction. Well, one thing do you see happening in the market uh, among the many that you've already shared that maybe is nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? So, you know, I know when you sent that over, I was trying to think about that. And, and it's, I think back to some of the conversations I've had with some other people you know, I think one of the things that we might see that may may kind of hit people that they're not really expecting is I'll give you I'll give you an example. My previous company had some business partners in Indonesia, and uh, I was amazed when I went to Jakarta that uh, you know they th- this particular company had a telecommunications business, and I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, you have all these rural areas, and how expensive is that to really increase telecommunications and and they were like, oh, no, no, it's simple. It's simple. We're just doing it all through cellular. I mean, like you guys in the U.S., you guys had to build, you guys built all this copper wire everywhere and put poles up everywhere. Like, no, no, we're just putting these repeaters up. It's like super easy for us to do that. And I'm like, dang, okay. So sometimes these areas that are, that don't have the burden of the legacy infrastructure, they're able to innovate and pivot faster. Uh, and I was talking to some of these folks and there may be some of these emergent technologies that are able to get to market faster, that are coming from places that we wouldn't think. You know, we think of the technological innovators as, you know, Western Europe and Japan and the United States and some of these places. And we might actually find, you know, necessity being the mother of of invention where because there's no incumbent class of people that you have to get out of the way in order for them to be successful, you're just providing a solution. We, We might see some pretty cool things emerge from the developing world that we, we just we wouldn't think you would be able you would think they would happen in a lab here, but someone might come up with it someplace else. So that's that's something that's definitely I think that would be a it's not on a lot of people's radar screens, but there's a lot of reasons why I think that could potentially happen. Fantastic. Uh, I, I love the way that you are thinking uh, about that pattern matching and extracting ideas from other areas. Uh, one of my mentors refers to it as idea sex. And, and if you're an, if you're an innovator and you are a, a brainstorming machine, I call it an idea machine, then, you know, reading science daily and thinking about what's happening in international markets and, and the, it leads to coming up with the kinds of, uh, I'll say predictions, but also uh, manifestations of where the markets are going that you've heard here from Jessen. Uh, Jessen Bradshaw is the CEO and founder of Energy Ogre, Justin, it's been an unbelievable opportunity and uh, joy to chat with you this morning. Thank you for joining us on Suncast. Tons of fun. I uh, I enjoyed it immensely and I've enjoyed it. And if there's anything that I can do, we're happy to come back anytime. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on today's conversation, but it doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. No, I hope that you will join us online, share your thoughts and takeaways. What did you learn? Thank you so much to Jesson Bradshaw and his team over at Energy Ogre for connecting and joining us here on Suncast. And I would love, as I know he would, to hear, what did we help you learn that you're going to apply to your business or your career today? If you're eager to keep learning and, and you are, you didn't write down some of the things that we talked about, well, fear not. You, my fellow Philomath, can head over to the resources section on our website. We named it the show notes section uh, at mysuncast.com. And that's where you'll find highlights from this discussion and every other discussion that we've engaged in, along with social media links and book recommendations, so much more. 
And of course, if you're not already subscribed to our newsletter, well, that's how you'll know when the next episode comes out. Uh, if you are the kind that use email as a trigger to take action on things. Every Thursday, we have an episode just like what you've listened to, to go into the insights, career advice, and twists and turns from the perspective of an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, an executive, a CEO, a founder in the clean economy, how they think about the market and where it's going. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help bring this content to you and make it free for you to enjoy every single week. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions every single week of the year. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>